Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Coming All the Way Home, Affirming the Incidental Face of Creation. It's a guest essay by Daniel Deffenbaugh, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Religion at Hastings College in Hastings, Nebraska. Dan Deffenbaugh has published a book called Learning the Language of the Fields, Tilling and Keeping as Christian Vocation by Cowley Publishers, 2006. Dan's essay is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 18th, 2007, the fourth Sunday in Lent. If there is anything that can be said for the winter landscape of Nebraska, is that it knows how to cooperate in providing an appropriate setting for the observance of Lent. A season that begins with Jesus' trial and temptation in the desert and moves gradually through the symbolic geography of reflection and repentance seems well suited for this part of the country. Here in Nebraska, March rushes in like the king of beasts and never gives the slightest thought to skipping out like a lamb. Winters are cold, and the wind is a constant adversary, tempting us to try to execute even the most basic of human tasks without bowing to its invisible power and dominion. The fields that were lush and green in the halcyon days of August are now just drifts of snow stretching out toward an endless horizon. I've always thought that there was an opportunity here that the state might do well to capitalize on. The ad campaign could target the spiritual seeker looking for a diversion from the customary 40 days of Lenten abstinence. It could read, Next year, do Lent right. Come to Nebraska. There's a palpable loneliness on the open prairie for someone like me who was raised in the nurturing arms of the Appalachian Mountains. And I wonder if something akin to this emptiness is what finally drove the prodigal son friendless and destitute, ashamed but still hopeful, back to the people who knew him best, back to his place. As the Gospel of Luke relates this parable in chapter 15, the younger of two brothers entreats his father for the inheritance that will eventually come to him in its proper time. Drawn to the excitement of a carefree existence in some far country, the young man indulges in a reckless lifestyle that too often accompanies the easy acquisition of wealth. It's not long, however, before he finds himself in the company of pigs, real pigs, not just the fair-weather friend variety. In a short time, he manages to turn his back on his family, forsake the familiarity of his homeland, and lose sight of his, of his religious heritage, as is suggested by his intimate knowledge of the swine pen. Devoid of these most basic relationships, he's become, in effect, a non-person. He's lost his self. Those who lack the discipline for serious introspection will often be driven to it by circumstance, and this is what happens here. At this point, the young man attains what Wallace Stephen calls, quote, a mind of winter, end quote, an experience of emptiness in all things, an acute awareness of, quote, the nothing that is not there, 
and the nothing that is, end quote. But it's not an experience utterly without hope, for he's still by grace able to utter the one word with which his entire misadventure began, Father. <clears throat> the events of the prodigal's return are well known, but familiarity can breed a dullness of spirit that can often prevent us from hearing the story anew. Toward the end of his life, the great Catholic theologian Henry Nouwen became particularly intrigued by Rembrandt's rendering of this parable in his painting, The Return of the Prodigal. Nouwen relates how over a period of several years he would return to this work simply to sit and contemplate its significance for his life. At first, he says, he was drawn to the image of the sun kneeling at his father's feet. His shaven head and tattered robe speak to the depths of the young man's despair, but the gentle weight of his father's hands assures the boy that there is still a place where he belongs. Now and perceived in this image a spiritual truth that he claimed for his own, that whatever he might lose in this life, he was still his father's child. At another point in his journey, Nowen was taken by the image of the dutiful brother, whose disdain for his siblings now made him the foreigner, dwelling them in the far country of contempt. How often, Nowen asked, had his own vain sense of obligation and responsibility kept him from exercising his true humanity? Eventually, Nowen came to see in the father an aspect of his own spiritual life that needed constantly to be nurtured, the ability to show compassion and forgiveness, to welcome home each and every lost soul with the strong left hand of a father and the nurturing right hand of a mother. When I ponder Rembrandt's painting, I have to admit that I'm not first drawn to the prodigal, nor to the elder brother, or even to the father. Perhaps it's a kind of artistic attention deficit order that afflicts me, but I find myself less concerned with the story as it unfolds among the prominent figures on the canvas and more intrigued by what's going on behind the scenes. The placement of the father and son on the left and the elder brother on the right reflects the distance and dysfunction that have been created by the affairs of the day. But I'm fascinated by the way that Rembrandt chose to occupy the shadowy depths behind them all with a personal presence. Whose form is hovering there in the darkness? Is it simply a device for centering the vignette, encouraging the viewer to witness at once the full human drama of repentance, jealousy, and compassion? What new insights into the story might we gain if we spend just a little time reflecting on this apparently incidental face? <clears throat> I believe Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son offers a kind of visual clue to the way that Christian theology has for centuries viewed the ordeal of human sin and redemption, as if it occurs solely on the plane of human history with creation as little more than what you might call an incidental face. Over the last four decades, many have criticized the Judeo-Christian tradition as having much to do with the current ecological embarrassments that we now face. The planet is heating up, 
fresh water is becoming more scarce, agricultural practices are contaminating the land, and our consumption is made all the more conspicuous by the garbage that strains the capacities of our landfills. Like the wayward son, we have squandered our inheritance to the point that the creation itself is adorned in tattered rags. Well, what should we expect, some would argue, from a tradition that has featured human dominion over a world that is not affirmed as our true home? Consider, for example, the commentary of Ephraim the Syrian, who died in the year 373. Listen to Ephraim on the real import of the prodigal's return. He refers to the prodigal's parable in these words. It's a parable for those who, with perception, is to be found in this homecoming. Let us too return to our father's house, my brothers, and do not become captivated with desire for this transient earth, for your true city is in Eden. Given our tradition and the gravity of our present ecological concerns, reconciliation and redemption must no longer be thought of as matters pertaining only to fathers and sons. We've come to a point in our history where the so-called incidental face of creation needs to be brought out of the shadows and included as a full participant in the drama of redemption. As children of God, the confession of our sins against heaven and before you, as the liturgy says, needs now to feature an additional clause. We've sinned against creation by forsaking our home for some far country. The Apostle Paul laid the foundation for a new way of understanding Christian repentance and redemption. In his epistle to the Romans, he makes a curious illusion, allusion in Romans 8, verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God, he writes. Paul's logic in this is easy to comprehend. If we agree that the entire created order fell as a result of one man's disobedience, then we must necessarily assume that the redemption effected in the work of Christ, the second Adam, is not merely a human affair, but extends also to the natural world. Consequently, the works of sanctification that are performed in gratitude by each and every Christian must reach into the very earth of which we are a part. Indeed, creation is waiting with what Paul calls eager longing for this. The Eden that Ephraim the Syrian believed to be our true home is not located in some far country in heaven beyond history. On the contrary, it's right here, right now, in the earth beneath our feet. So when Paul assures the Corinthians that in Christ they have become a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he chooses his words carefully. We're not merely renewed persons, as we are prone to think in our highly individualistic culture, but a transformed people living in place. The incidental face that has lingered so long in the darkness, peering out with eager longing, must now be affirmed as a legitimate member of the Christian fold. 
Drifting snow and howling winds are not the last word on my Nebraska landscape. Just that the season of Lent is only a temporary journey on the way toward the joy of Easter. Those who have endured the long prairie winters know that this land is a wonderful healer of itself, taking the harsh months and transforming them into glorious profusions of flowers and indigenous grasses. The seeds and rhizomes of the plants remain dormant in the frozen soil, waiting the proper time for their own revelation as children of God. Yet, not all is well here, as so many of our environmental problems attest. And I have to wonder where the voice of the church is in all of this. Are we content simply to see emptiness and otherness in our ecological community, thereby disavowing ourselves of any responsibility for its well-being? For after all, God cares for the soul, not the soil. Or can we, like the prodigal son, find the slightest measure of hope that will encourage us to repent and come all the way home? to our family, and to our place. To be a new creation, to be completely transformed by God's grace, means that we will now need to be especially aware of the faces that have long lingered in the darkness, awaiting our revelation as children of God. And the first step on our journey home begins with this earnest confession. Father, we have sinned against heaven and before you, and we have sinned against creation. And now for further reflection. With which figure in Rembrandt's return of the prodigal son do you identify most? Number two, are there ways that you might acknowledge your Christian responsibility toward creation in your Lenten disciplines this year? What habits might you curtail, or what practices might you adopt? If your church community could take three easy steps toward being a better steward of creation, what would they be? And finally, I would encourage the book by Dan Deffenbach, Learning the Language of the Fields, Tilling and Keeping as Christian Vocation. For books this week, I review Nora Gallagher, Practicing Resurrection, a memoir of work, doubt, discernment, and moments of grace. New York, Vintage, 2003, 216 pages. In this sequel to her bestseller, Things Seen and Unseen, Nora Gallagher continues to explore what a life of Christian faith marked by authenticity and integrity, might look like in our contemporary world. She compares her journey of faith to the swimming lessons she took as a child. Quote, A life of faith is amorphous, ephemeral, a glimpse, a moment. Trusting it is like my early swimming lessons learning to float. In particular, her brother Kit's diagnosis of bladder cancer a prognosis for a so-called 0% chance of recovery, the horrors of surgery and chemotherapy, and her brother's eventual death 
all forced her to ask life-altering questions about God's call upon her own life. And so the themes of vocation and call loom large in practicing resurrection. Through her many involvements at Trinity Episcopal Church in Santa Barbara, Gallagher began to wonder might God what began to wonder what might God have for her. To what could she devote her passion and considerable skills? Where did her joy and gladness intersect? with the world's needs, as Buchner once put it. Sensing a possible call to the priesthood, her church formed a discernment committee of four saints. They met once a month for three hours across the year, plying Gallagher with questions, telling their own stories about vocation, reading the scriptures, praying, and perhaps most important of all, honoring listening. What voices should Gallagher listen to? Which ones should she tune out? What about her husband's deep ambivalence? Was the priesthood any more sacred than her identity as a writer that she had nurtured for over 30 years? After negotiating the labyrinth of the Episcopal bureaucracy and its application process, Gallagher was what she calls exiled to a very different parish with a very different priest for a year as a ministry student. At first she felt like she and the priest were on what she calls a bad blind date, but across the year she gained a deep appreciation for her mentor's faithfulness. While Gallagher was trying to discern how she might hear God's call, Trinity Episcopal grappled with how as a church they might extend a call. Their interim pastor had informed the vestry that he was gay. Should that impact whether they called him as their regular priest? How did they guard issues of confidentiality once the vestry knew, but the congregation did not know? How should they tell the congregation? What about feelings of distrust and betrayal? Should the church wrap the different but related matter of gay marriages in with the possible call of the pastor? And how might the denominational officials respond, if at all? You'll have to read this fine memoir to learn about Gallagher's call to church and the church's call to the pastor. In the end, she likens herself to a friend who was listening to an unctuous priest ask, What do you really want for Christmas this year? Her friend responded, What I wanted to do was to stand up and call out, I would like to really believe in the resurrection. Her remark reminded me of the words of the eminent church historian Yaroslav Pelagin, who near the end of his life said, quote, If Jesus rose from the dead, nothing else matters. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, nothing else matters. In practicing resurrection, we thus inaugurate a tiny bit of God's eschatological future into our lives today. Fans of Nora Gallagher, and their numbers are considerable, will also want to note the release of her first novel, Changing Light, in the spring of 2007. Nora Gallagher, Practicing Resurrection, For film this week, I review 
a documentary called Refuge of Last Resort from the year 2006. Stranded in a New Orleans hotel with a group of five adults and four children, filmmaker James Bills put his camera to good use in his native city. In this one-hour documentary, with no stock footage at all, he simply records the city before, during, and mainly after Hurricane Katrina hit on August 29, 2005. Even today, seeing his film, it's hard to comprehend the terrifying power, destructive force, and catastrophic flooding of the storm. Bills interviews a handful of citizens and with understated narration lets them tell their own stories. The bald lies and gross incompetence of local, state, and especially the federal government loom large. It has changed me forever, reminisced one woman. I will never depend on the government for anything. You're on your own. A recent article in the New York Times suggested that 18 months later, New or the New Orleans population has probably topped out at less than half of its pre-hurricane size. Refuge of Last Resort from the year 2006. And finally, for St. Patrick's Day, we've posted the prayer of St. Patrick, St. Patrick of Ireland, who lived in the fifth century. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth and his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion and his burial, through the strength of his resurrection and ascension, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. I arise today through the strength of the love of cherubim, in obedience of angels, in service of archangels, in the hope of resurrection to meet with reward, in the prayers of patriarchs, in preachings of the apostles, in faiths of confessors, in innocence of virgins, in deeds of righteous men. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of the sun, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of the wind, depth of the sea, stability of the earth, firmness of the rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me. God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's hosts to save me. From snares of the devil, from temptations of vices, from everyone who desires me ill, 
afar and near, alone or in a multitude. I summon today all these powers between me and evil, against every cruel, merciless power that opposes my body and soul, against incantations of false prophets, against black laws of pagandom, against false laws of heretics, against craft of idolatry, against spells of women and smiths and wizards, against every knowledge that corrupts man's body and soul. Christ shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that reward may come to me in abundance. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, through a confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. The Prayer of St. Patrick. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 18th, the fourth Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.